Hello there and welcome to this podcast from the heart of Spurgeon. My name is Jeremy Walker. I'm your host. I'm a pastor and a preacher in a church in the southeast of England, Maidenbower Baptist Church in Crawley in West Sussex. This podcast is produced by Media Gratii and you can find more of their material at mediagratii.org as well as signing up to a podcast newsletter at mediagratii.org slash podcasts and clicking on From the Heart of Spurgeon. If you want to follow us uh, day by day, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Reading Spurgeon. That's at Reading Spurgeon. And that's where we try and post usually daily quotations from the sermon that we're reading that particular day. And then uh, we feature each week a sermon, and that's the subject of this podcast. So this week we're in sermons 885 to 891, and the featured sermon is the first in this week, 885. The title is Serving the Lord, and the text is Romans 12 and verse 11. It was preached on the 15th of August, 1869, at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington by Mr. Spurgeon. He begins by telling us that the harmony of Scripture is admirable. Everything is proportionate and balanced. He who weighed the mountains in scales has had a clear eye to the adjustment of truth in his word. Within these pages you find a sufficiency of doctrine, for it is the basis of practice. You read abundance of promise, for it is the support of perseverance. But you meet also with frequency of precept, for it is the spur and guide of holiness. So, not for Spurgeon then, the modern tendency to cry down everything that smacks of duty. Rather, Spurgeon understands that precept has its proper place in the scriptures and in the life of God's people. It is the spur and guide of holiness. In other words, God is entitled to tell us what to do. He does tell us what to do, and it is our blessing and his glory when we do what he tells us. Absolutely perfect are the proportions of inspired truth, and it's noteworthy that practical truth has the greatest prominence, says Spurgeon. And so, we as God's people, whatever our position in life may be, are so to order our conduct in life so as to commend ourselves for diligence and uprightness both to the church and to the world. The keystone of the arch of life, that central locking element, is to be a desire for God's glory. At this point, the public and the private, the bodily and the spiritual, are to be as one. Both in business diligence and spiritual fervency, we are to set the Lord always before us. Everyday labour becomes priestly sacrifice. Inward fervour is like temple incense. And we are always serving the Lord. Now, Spurgeon's doing in this sermon something at which he's particularly adept. In Romans 12 and verse 11, uh, you've actually got uh, three statements there. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. And that in itself is part of a a bigger statement about the behaviour of God's people. But what Spurgeon's going to do is to zero in on this particular text. He says, my aim in this sermon will be to call upon my believing brothers to fulfil in their lives the meaning of the words which we have now selected as our text, serving the Lord, or, as it might be rendered, doing the part of servants toward God. Servantizing, he calls it, waiting as servants upon the Most High. 
So, again, he wouldn't be ignorant of the broader context of this particular phrase coming as it does in this sequence of exhortations and commandments to God's people, but he's going to zero in on this element and develop and apply it. First of all, then, he says we need to take note of the essentials of all true service to God. These are the things that are foundational in serving the Lord. The very first of them must be the man who would render service must beforehand be accepted as a servant. Spurgeon says if a, if a stranger just rocked up to your farm and started doing work around the farm, he wouldn't be a servant. He would be an intruder because you haven't employed him. And so it is with us. We must enter God's employ, as it were. He's not suggesting then that there would be a debt that God owes us on account of our service. He's using it as an illustration. Unregenerate man cannot serve God because his thoughts and ways are evil and defiled. You must first of all, says Spurgeon, be taken into the Lord's employment before you can render him service. You must then be won by power as well as bought with price. Christ must have died for you and Christ's grace toward you must have been manifest in bringing you out of darkness into light. Do you know, says Spurgeon, what the mighty working of God's power means? Has sovereign grace subdued you? Have you in very deed been translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son? If you do not know these things, little avails it that you do pretend to fear the Lord, for your profession is hollow and vain. So Christ must have died for you, and on that basis you must have been brought to God in Christ. Another image from the word of God, true servants of God are such as are born in his house as well as bought with his money. You must be born again, born from above. Preliminary to all holy service must be regeneration. So you understand that Spurgeon is evidently not saying that you work and therefore God saves you. Rather, you work because God has saved you. So he's developing then this this first principle the essentials of all true service to God, the first of them, you must first of all be accepted as a servant, as one who's been bought with a price, won by power and born from above. Next to this, he says, it's vitally needful that in all our service, we sincerely and simply render our obedience to the Lord himself. Much that is done religiously is not done unto God. So it really must be that you are serving the Lord and not yourself or someone else. To whom do you look for a reward? asks Spurgeon. Whose smile is it that gladdens you? Whose frown would depress you? Whose honour do you seek in all that you're doing? For remember, that which is uppermost in your heart is your master. If your deepest motive to be seen to be active, to, to appear to be diligent, to win commendation for taking your share in the church's work, you have not served God, but sacrificed unto others. So he's saying, it's not enough just to be a worker. You must be working for the glory of God. The Lord must be the sole object of your labor. The pursuit of his glory must, like a clear crystal stream, run through the whole of your life or you are not yet his servant. Sinister motives and selfish aims are the death of true godliness. Search and look, lest these betray you unawares. Then again, you must serve God in the way of God's own appointment. How are your lives ordered, he asks. I, I want to ask it of myself as well as you. 
Have you had an eye to your master's mind in what you have done in religious matters? So it's not just serving the Lord, but serving as God has prescribed. We cannot simply say we're being sincere, we like it this way, or we're confident that God would appreciate it. God has told us what he desires, what he delights in, that which pleases him. And that then is the rule of our faith and our life. Has it occurred to you frequently and does it occur to you constantly to see what the Lord would have you do, asks our preacher. Otherwise, I warn you that you may be born along the rapid stream of church activity in the channel of mere tradition and may never render acceptable homage to your Lord. Or you may be restlessly busy on your own account and after your own will, but your exertions will not be service to God because you did not consult his will. So you must be thinking in terms of obedience to the Lord Christ, obedience to the word of God. Then, if we're going to be truly and acceptably serving God, it must be in his strength. If we attempt to perfect holiness without waiting upon the Holy Spirit for power, we'll be as foolish as the apostles would have been if they'd commenced preaching and had forgotten the Master's exhortation, wait at Jerusalem until power be given to you from on high. In other words, we must be depending on Christ's strength, not just in a in a formal sense, but very much waiting upon him. None of us can honour the Lord except as we daily derive strength from the fountain of all power. Have we really pleaded with God to uphold us, or have we gone about our business as if we could do it ourselves? Have we prayed to the Lord that he would bless us in the work that we do? Oh God, we might we might ask you to forgive us. I think we'd all say that we've, we're so self-sufficient, or at least we act as if we think we are. Spurgeon goes on, We stand continually ready to obey the Lord's will in anything and everything without distinction, and that also marks us out as true servants of God. You cannot serve the Lord if you pick and choose your duties. He who enlists in the army of the Most High surrenders his will to the discipline of the army and the bidding of the captain. Whatsoever Christ bids any of us to do in the future, we must unhesitatingly perform. We may be called to posts of labour, he goes on, for which we feel ourselves to be inadequate. We may be bidden to attempt work from which our spirit as yet recoils. But if we be called to it, it is not ours to ask the reason why, it is ours, if necessary, even to dare and die in serving the Lord. What have you to do then with finding strength? It is God's to give it to you in the hour of need. What is it whether you like or dislike something? You are a servant and you like that which your master bids you do. Your will must be subdued. Your prejudices, instead of being pampered, must be destroyed. It's an all-consuming conviction and commitment to the word of Christ and to the service of his holy name. He only, says Spurgeon, is a sincere servant who is intent upon doing the whole of his Lord's will, let that will be what it may. Now Spurgeon says, and he mentions this quite a lot at this period, perhaps he's particularly weary or uh, he feels a certain slowness of mind, but he says, I wish I could in more attractive style describe this service, but let this suffice. I am persuaded, brothers, that serving the Lord is not a merely external and outward religiousness. It is a matter of the heart and of the soul. 
a matter of the conscience and of the affections. Serving the Lord is not a thing of fits and starts, spasms and excitements. It is a constant, thorough, practical, universal subservience to the mind of the Most High. Serving the Lord is not mere thought, scheme, plan, resolution. It is the actually spending and being spent. It is the exercise of all the energies of nature and of all the energies of grace in the cause of him from whom all energy is derived. This holy diligence, then, is what it means to be serving the Lord. Now, in the second place, to help and guide earnest spirits, some of the modes in which we may at this day serve the Lord. If that's the the spirit and the energy and the endeavour with which we are truly to serve God, what are the modes? What's it going to look like? Now, he he says, dear brothers and sisters, from, from sickness, from want of education, or from your position in life, you may have had no opportunities to preach the word or even to teach it to a few. Well, remember that a quiet, holy example is true service of God. So he's reminding those who may not be able to do what they would wish to do or who cannot do as much as others might do, that if they are providentially hindered from acting in ways that they might wish and others might be able to, it nevertheless does not mean that they are not serving the Lord truly. For there are various ways of serving God. How much, he asks, may be done for the Master's kingdom by the King's remembrances, who put him in mind day by day of the agonies of his Son and of his covenant and promise to give him a widening dominion. I doubt not that many sick beds in England are doing more for Christ than our pulpits. So he's saying, if, if I think we've probably mentioned this before, Spurgeon, I think, would have been horrified if, if someone said, all I can do is pray. I can only pray. I can just pray. All? Only? Just? He would have said. This, this is the way that blessing comes. This is the way that God pours out his mercies. Don't ever diminish the place of prayer in the work of the kingdom. In all buildings, there must be some unseen stones, and are not these very often the most important of all? In the very foundation of a church, I should place those who are mighty in prayer. They are hidden, as it were, beneath the sods of obscurity where we cannot see them, but they are upbearing the entire structure. But, he says, we're not all in that position. We're not all restricted to prayer as the only means of serving the Lord. There must be others, he says, who are able to do something else than that. Can you not speak at least now and then a word for Christ? He says, actually, you could probably do that even if you're in that position. Look for it. Remember that if your holy living and your prayers can only be accompanied with the smallest possible service, if it be all that is possible, you shall be as much accepted as those who do far more. So now he's saying, don't limit yourself just because you are otherwise limited. Take care that you give all, and if you give all, you've offered as much and more than some of us whose opportunities are ampler and whose responsibilities are greater. And this is where he moves on now. He says, so you may be able only to pray. Well, don't diminish the place of prayer. If you think that you can pray and no more, then consider whether or not there is something more that you might yet do. And yet, do not use these as excuses for idleness if you can do more. 
So, brothers, the form of service our master most desires of us is comprehensively this, that we make known the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's been said that it's not our duty to convert nations, nor even to save a single soul, and I believe there's truth in the assertion. It's not our duty to do what we cannot by any possibility do, since only God himself can convert or regenerate a soul. Jesus did not command us to make men accept the gospel, but he has bidden us to make known the gospel to every creature. This, then, is our great service. We are to preach the gospel, and whether it be a savour of death unto death or of life unto life is left in God's hands. Whether men receive it or reject it is not with us. It is ours to preach to all men, to sow, though the wheat fall among tares, though it waste on the highway, though it perish ultimately on the stony ground. To sow everywhere is our duty, and the whole world is our field. It is then, Christian, your bounden duty every day of your life to be making men to know the mystery which has been hid for ages, even the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glorious fact that he came into the world to save sinners, even the chief. Now, if our great duty is to make known the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we should, every one of us, aim at the conversion of sinners. I said that to convert them was not our duty, Spurgeon goes on, but I append to that statement this other assertion, that to aim at their conversion is our duty and our privilege, and we are not to be self-complacently content with having merely spoken the truth. We are to look for signs following. So he says, don't, don't console yourselves with a fatalistic notion of the sovereignty of God. Don't say in effect, well, yeah, it's ours to do this and, and God will take care of the rest. Do you care, he says? Are you earnest? Do you expect fruit? How many, my dear friend, were you ever the means of bringing to Jesus? You believe that they must perish everlastingly unless they have faith in Christ. How many have you personally prayed for? How many did you ever break your heart about? You believe that they must love Christ or be damned. How many have you ever talked to concerning him who is the only Saviour? To how many have you borne your testimony of his kindness and his grace? Upon how many have you laid the tender hand to press them to follow after the Saviour? He says the questions sound so trite as I put them, and perhaps as they come to your ears you're weary with them as being so commonplace. But he says, what if God were to use them? even if they're so lowly and humble. My work, he says, is stern enough. My responsibility is heavy enough. I cannot undertake yours also. In the winning of souls, no Christian can be proxy for another. So use these questions. The idea of supporting a missionary or supporting a minister to do my work for God is an idea that never ought to have crossed the Christian's mind. I think some of us salve our consciences today uh, whether or not it's in the congregation that we are uh, of which we're members or further afield if we're paying someone to go out onto the highways and byways if we're supporting a man in some other place to preach the gospel we seem to think that we've done our work no no says spurgeon you yourself are to be a speaker for christ then he goes on to a third form or mode of usefulness which is endeavoring to reclaim backsliders the object of church discipline should always be the good of the person who has to endure it. There is no more Christ-like work anywhere than for elder Christians to be watching over the young ones, checking their first declensions, nipping the evil in the bud. No nobler work 
unless it be the restoration of those who have actually gone astray. So are we seeking those who have wandered from the way? Are we doing all that we can to to, to call to repentance and to bring to a restoration of fellowship with Christ and his church those who have grieved and injured the Lord Jesus and his people? We, We should be pleading for this and pleading with those who have so gone astray. Then another mode of usefulness is for Christians to seek the edification of one another. How much might some of you do for the edification of younger Christians, he asks, if you would but seek opportunities? Ah, Christian man, I fear you accumulate experience and you gather knowledge, but the whole of it becomes unprofitable because you are not diligent in its use for the good of the church. And he says, you may not be able to accomplish these things to any large extent, but God entrusts you with wealth, then make use of your substance for him. In other, in fine, he says, in whatever the form of your gift, once it gets down to the, the nitty gritty, let your work correspond to your gift according to the grace given, let the work rendered be. You are a part of the body of Christ. You are a, a member of that body, of that community. Work with what God has given you to do. Now he says there's a commendation due to this service. Here is his third point. So recall the first the essentials of all true service to God. The second, the modes in which we may at this day serve the Lord. And he's identified the, 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 the making known of the gospel of Christ, the conversion of sinners, the reclamation of backsliders and the edification of one another in the church, urging everyone to do all that they can, no matter how weak and feeble and frail and poor they may be. And now he says, let me commend such service. First of all, he says, it's the natural element of godliness. If you could restrict the Christian from the service of God, you would debar him from his highest joy. Then it's the highest honour. To serve the Lord is to stand on a level with the angels, to worship the same master as they do who are in the presence of the divine majesty. It's better to serve God than rule a kingdom. Nay, he's both a king and a priest who has thoroughly entered into the service of the Most High. So it's your natural element. It's your highest honour. It's your highest pleasure. I will warrant you, says Spurgeon, and this is a point that he makes repeatedly, that the happiest members of any church are the most diligent. Those who sit still easily imagine sorrows. Idlers are those who indulge in criticism of other people's service and find themselves most happy when they can be pulling other men's work to pieces. This bitter spirit dies in the atmosphere of hard work. Doubts and fears fly before sacred activity. And I've sometimes wondered personally, pastorally, whether or not that inactivity is cause or effect. Sometimes people just seem to to become angry and and distant and critical of whatever else is going on, and they, they drift into the margins of church life. Spurgeon says that the reverse is also true. If some of these people actually threw themselves into the work and spent less time accusing or critiquing those who are engaged in it, then not only would they be happier, but they would be healthier parts of the body as a whole. And then, if you would educate your soul, you must be active. No man grows to be a perfect Christian by lying on the bed of sloth. Our manhood is developed by exercise. The soldier grows into the veteran amidst the smoke of battle. In other words, doing is some of the best learning. 
for all the theory that there may be, there is a time when it comes to get your hands dirty. And that's uh, eminently true in Christian labour and in pastoral ministry as much as in anything else. My dear brothers, then he says, there are 10,000 things that I might say with regard to Christian activity, all of which ought to excite your minds to present action. Are you patriots? You cannot serve your country better than by serving your Lord. Are you philanthropists? You cannot bless the human race more effectually than by seeking to extend the kingdom of Jesus Christ in it. Do you sigh and cry over the woes of others? You cannot better redress them than by the gospel, which is the universal remedy. Do you deplore the abundant ignorance around you? No light can scatter it like the knowledge of Christ's gospel. Are you afraid of the future? Do you dread revolution and anarchy? Nothing can settle the pillars of order like the testimony of Christ Jesus. In fact, there is nothing that you can do that is holier, more worthy of your best nature, you're more fraught with blessing than serving the Lord. What a, a beautiful reminder and a remedy to so much of the uh, the nonsense that we have to contend with today, the kind of uh, diversion from and, and the dilution of the great work of the kingdom of God. Spurgeon says, let this then, let this be your, your great concern. Let this be your first aim. Because if you really want to do all these other things, then serve God above all as a true Christian. And now he concludes with the present need of Christian service. And I think we've really got to take this to heart in our day. It's not enough to theorize about this. It's not enough to applaud a sermon about serving the Lord. We must do this ourselves. There is always need to be serving the Lord, says Spurgeon, for your own sake. You cannot be holy and happy. You cannot be what a Christian ought to be unless you are ever more engaged in Jehovah's cause. And I think some of us who are pastors, we would plead with those fringe players, those more distant and uh, critical or uh, resentful or uh, angry or despondent people who, who just seem to flounder and to drift if you want to be happy, then serve. If you want to be energetic, then use whatever energy that you have got. He says you need to do it because so few professors are doing it. I wouldn't judge harshly, he says, but as I look down the role, I think he means the, the membership role here, and notice the number that have given their names to the church, I cannot help fetching a sigh over one and another as I remember that the name is all that we at present can call our own so far as we can judge. There are people, even in that congregation at the tabernacle in Spurgeon's day, who'd signed up but who were otherwise absent in terms of their presence and their endeavour. Spurgeon says, what if we all pulled together? What if we were all zealous? He calls us then to get down on our knees. Forgive me, great God, for all my past neglect. And from this hour, cleanse me from the blood of souls by the blood of Jesus. And help me to be instant in season and out of season in instructing my fellow men. Never from this day until I die, may I neglect an opportunity of telling to men how they may be saved. How would we even dare to pray like that? Do we really mean such words? Ah, dear friends, he concludes, I'd hoped to have spoken to you most earnestly, but I fear I have been to you myself only a model of that coldness which I have condemned. Here you, you hear the preacher's heart. There's, 
there, there's there's so much of grief and self frustration in preaching. He says, here am I trying to stir you all up, and I feel like I need to be stirred up. I'm trying to tell you to be warm, and I myself am cold. Woe is me that I too should be guilty. I chide the evil far more in myself than in you, and pray to be saved from it. May we all, as pastors, deacons, elders, members, Sunday school teachers, and workers of all sorts, be indeed from this good hour much more with God in prayer, and much more zealous in our labours, that it may never have to be laid to our charge again, that while we were not slothful in business, we were unfervent in spirit, and were not serving the Lord. Well, my friends, perhaps you're thinking, what else can I do? What more can I do? What can I at least begin to do? And if I cannot do much, can I speak a word here or there, first to God for men, and then to men for God? May God bless us indeed and help us more and more to be the kind of men and women who are fervent in spirit and servantizing, waiting upon the Most High as his servants. Let's take these things to heart and seek to repair what damage we may have done, to fill in the gaps that we may have left, and to look to God in Christ and to consider all the motives we have to serve him in our generation. I hope it's been a blessing to consider these things. I hope you'll join us again next time if the Lord spares us all when we're going to be reading from Sermon 892 to 898. And 898 is our featured sermon. That one is a word with those who wait for signs and wonders. A word with those who wait for signs and wonders. And I hope that somewhat whets your appetite for next time. God bless you until then, and thanks for listening.